In today's sermon, we're going to look at when King David of Israel mourned the death of his baby. This matters not just to those of us who may have lost children, but this has lessons for all of us who grieve. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13-14 says, Christians do not grieve like the rest of the world who has no hope because we believe that Jesus died and rose again. Humans naturally grieve death and loss, but hope in grief is possible. To grieve with hope, I must believe in the resurrection. In 2 Samuel 12, 10-25, the prophet Nathan begins by saying to King David, Now therefore the sword will never leave your house, because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own wife. This is what the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you from your own family. I will take your wives and give them to another before your very eyes, and he will sleep with them in broad daylight. You acted in secret, but I will do this before all Israel and in broad daylight. David responded to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Then Nathan replied to David, And the Lord has taken away your sin. You will not die. However, because you treated the Lord with such contempt in this matter, the son born to you will die. Then Nathan went home. The Lord struck the baby that Uriah's wife had born to David, and he became deathly ill. Verse 16. David pleaded with God for the boy. He fasted, went home, and spent the night lying on the ground. The elders of his house stood beside him to to get up from the ground, but he was unwilling and would not eat anything with them. On the seventh day, the baby died, but David's servants were all afraid to tell him the baby was dead. They said, look, while the baby was alive, we spoke to him and he wouldn't listen to us. So how can we tell him the baby's dead? He may do something desperate. When David saw that his servants were whispering to each other, he guessed that the baby was dead. So he asked his servants, Is the baby dead? He is dead, they replied. Verse 20. Then David got up from the ground he washed, anointed himself, changed his clothes, went to the Lord's house, and worshipped. Then he went home and requested something to eat. So they served him food and he ate. His servants asked him, Why have you done this? While the baby was alive, you fasted and wept. But when he died... You got up and ate food. 
He answered, While the baby was alive, I fasted and wept because I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let him live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I'll go to him, but he will never return to me. Then David comforted his wife, Bathsheba. He went to her and slept with her, and she gave birth to a son and named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and he sent a message through the prophet Nathan, who named him Jedidiah, because of the Lord. Well, first in this story, we have the diagnosis. We're jumping in here at the end of the story where David has already slept with another man's wife, gotten her pregnant, and had her husband killed. It is to those evil acts that David confesses to Nathan and to God. The initial punishment that Nathan says David will receive from the Lord are in verses 10 and 11. First, that David will have war, at least for the rest of his life, perhaps for as long as his royal destiny dynasty lasts. And second, that David's wives will be taken from him by an enemy from his own family, and that will be done publicly as opposed to how he took Uriah's wife privately. But when he confesses, confesses his sin, God forgives David. However, there's still ramifications. Instead of David and his royal line getting all the punishment, the baby conceived from his act of lust will die. The text says it was the Lord who made the baby sick. Now, that doesn't seem fair to me. The baby hadn't done anything wrong and yet has taken the punishment. I mean, wasn't David forgiven? We need to understand that forgiveness is the restoring of relationship. So David's relationship with God is restored. But the sin, the acts which break our relationship with God and with others, that still needs to be paid for. It's like the mother, Tiki Phelanson, her son was killed by a drunk driver named Letitia Stevens. Miss Finlayson publicly forgave Letitia Stevens in court. And the two women developed a friendship. Now they work together to educate people about the dangers of drunk driving. But before they started this work together, Letitia Stevens had to serve her prison sentence. If David doesn't pay the cost for his sin, then who will? The son of the king pays with his life. So David's son points us to Jesus, the son of God. The death of the son of the king of heaven and earth is also the diagnosis to cure my sins. 
John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only Son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, these may not be easy things to accept at first, that I deserve punishment, and that God let a royal innocent die in my place. But belief in that exchange is the foundation for forgiveness. So next, David prepares for and experiences the death of his child. David goes to prayer. And the question I had is this. Is David in the bargaining phase of grief? It's natural to think so. Every parent would want their child to live. God is merciful and may relent from his punishment. David says this himself. But careful study of this passage actually tells us something else that David is praying about. See, using the common usage of the Hebrew words in these verses, in verse 16 in particular, it should read like this. David inquired with God about the boy. He fasted and went to lay on the ground all night. Now, what is different about how I have translated that verse is, first, David is not pleading for the life of his son. David is asking God a question or questions about his son. Because the word there actually means to inquire. And secondly, David is not simply sleeping on the floor, but as a sign of grief and humble prayer. The word doesn't mean to sleep. It merely means to lay an object down, or with people it refers to sexual relations. We know David is not having sexual relations on the floor, but what he is doing is actively praying, asking God questions about his son while lying on the ground. And in praying for his child, instead of praying for himself, Lord, help me in my grief, David's personal grief has taken a step from self to other. See, healthy and hopeful grief cannot remain inwardly focused. What question is David asking God? We know that he's asking that his baby might live, but I think there's another question. And let me tell you about Bruce to help explain it. Bruce had cancer when I met him. Although he did pursue various treatments, he knew eventually he was going to die. As I talked with him one day, he said to me, Pastor, I've never been baptized. I'd like to be baptized. I asked him if he had faith in Jesus. And Bruce clearly expressed to me that he believed Jesus was God and that Jesus' death was the sacrifice for him. He had just simply never taken the step of publicly declaring his belief through baptism. So we made sure that Bruce got baptized. 
What does Bruce's story have to do with David? When we are faced with certain death, my concern becomes not how I will continue to live on this earth, but will I live with God the Father after death? When David gets the diagnosis of death for his son, he does immediately begin the grieving process. He grieves for seven days on the ground. But I believe his chief concern during that grieving is getting an answer to the question, God, will my baby, my loved one, be with you? The death David is concerned about is eternal separation from God, not just separation from this body or separation from this earth. And I wonder, why would anyone wait until the point of death to get the answer to this question? Especially when you and I can have the answer right now. Because it's in that answer we find our deliverance. So after seven days on the ground seeking God, David got his answer. The baby died, but David got up. He washed and clothed himself. He went to the tabernacle and worshipped, and then he ate food. It seems he returned to his normal life. David's advisors are confused. He seemed to be grieving so hard before the baby died that they suspected he'd be completely distraught once the baby actually died. But David has himself together, I believe, because he's received his answers from God. The first answer was that God was not going to relent and let the boy live. Now, that's heartbreaking. But David has hope in his grief because he can say, I will go to him. David has been proclaimed forgiven. He's in right relationship with God. So when David dies, he will see God. And David is also sure that he will see his son with God. Perhaps it's the same comfort that Job speaks of in Job chapter 3, that those who are stillborn or die young are at rest with the kings and counselors of the earth. In other words, in the presence of the counsel of God. From here, we see David continuing to move in his personal grief from self to others. David comforted his wife. Bathsheba has been a side character for most of the story. But what's her situation? Bathsheba was probably raped. Now, while there are women who would be perfectly willing to sleep with a person of power, Bathsheba is never said to be a willing participant. And realistically, she didn't have the option of saying no to the king. She got impregnated by the rapist, 
Her husband was murdered by the rapist. She had to marry her rapist. And her baby died. David personally grieves, but in seeking God, his first concern is the eternal soul of his baby, and then his second concern is his grieving wife. Healthy and hopeful grief cannot remain inwardly focused. And in this comfort, they got pregnant again. They have a son whom they named Solomon, who David will declare the royal heir, and who God declares is loved by God. This isn't a replacement child. This is a new life from tragedy and sin. Hopefully soon, the public gathering of the church will resume. Whenever that comes, it won't be the same church that went into quarantine. Some ways of doing church have probably died. And some new ways of being the church have come alive. Like an individual in personal grief, a healthy local church never stays inwardly focused, but must seek answers from God and bring others to God and comfort the hurting. The question we must ask God now is not just when do we come back from quarantine, but how do we come back? And what should I be doing and what should I be being when I come back? There should be prayer and ministry for people that has started during the stay-at-home order that continues into the future. Because Jesus, the Son of the King of Heaven and Earth, died so that people can live. I believe in the resurrection, so I grieve with hope. Healthy and hopeful grief cannot remain inwardly focused. And personal grief should move from self to others. Let's pray humbly together that people we love find life and strength and hope in Jesus as we make new disciples. Today, let's pray Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. Amen. I hope you'll take some time and reflect on today's message. 
I'd love to hear from you in the comments or on the connection card. I'd like to hear one thing that resonated with you. Maybe one thing that challenged you. One thing that you want to learn more about. And one thing that you will do based on how God may have spoken to you today.